Hello, you're listening to The Arts Report on CITR 11.9 FM. I'm your host, Jake Clark, uh, broadcasting from the unceded Musqueam territory of UBC's Point Grey campus. And I'm joined today by the representatives of the uh, MFA programs, MFA program, or is it the Creative Writing Programs, Brave New Playwrights. That'd be Frank Zotter and Peter Takash. Make yourselves known. How are you doing, Jake? Hey. Pretty good, pretty good. Can't complain. Usual sunny day in Vancouver. <laughs> <laughs> it's supposed to come out. Now we've uh, we've got a good we we liked Brave New last year. Mm-hmm. It's it's a time when you can see some very interesting things uh, come up come into the into this on on stage as it were. And um, we're wondering if you could just give us a quick pitch for the festival. Sure. Uh, thirty two years and going strong. Uh, Brave New uh, Playwrights Festival uh, started by uh, my professor Brian Wade. 32 years ago. And uh, this was a chance, uh, this and continues to be a chance to showcase uh, playwrights, emerging Canadian and international playwrights uh, from the BFA and MFA program here at UBC, give uh, the world a chance to kind of see some of their first productions. So uh, it's a very um, collaborative process where uh, playwriting, playwriters get to work with uh, professional actors and directors such as Frank uh, to develop their work. Sort of like Welcome to the Fun House, eh? Exactly. Mm-hmm. And Frank, you're a master's student? Graduate or, student, yeah. Graduate and student? first ever in acting here at UBC. All right. Mm-hmm. So breaking new ground. And your role with the festival is? Well, my friend Liesl Lafferty, she produces it. And uh, I put out uh, my uh, volunteer uh, arm up in the air for her and uh, she accepted it and asked me to be part of it. And it's great for me because I can just, you know, uh, put a new tool in my toolbox and direct and maybe even dramaturg a few of these plays. All right. It's it's definitely a great idea. Mm -hmm. And uh, what's, uh, I guess, so uh, Peter, you've uh, written a play called Crossroads, yeah? Yes, um, I'm excited. Uh, Crossroads is getting a staged reading directed yeah. by Frank. It's about a pair of air musicians who've lost their uh, 23rd straight Battle of the Bands. They've had enough, and they're going to try and sell it to the crowd. They're going to the Crossroads to try and sell their soul to the <laughs> devil so they can win this year. I was wondering about that. Like our, our last show, we were sort of talking about, about blues music, and there was a weird John Lee Hooker impression on mm-hmm. my part. But there's like the myth, like Robert Johnson selling his soul at the Crossroads, mm-hmm. and I guess you got hell, you got, you got the Bone Thugs and Harmony song, right? Mm-hmm. That's, that, that's, a, that's a great concept. And um, is that is that fairly par for the course? Is there a lot of magical realism here? Because there was last year. Plays, actually, we have a ton of different genres here. I'd say there's some pretty stark realism, mm-hmm. um, some pretty pretty strong comedy. Um, Would you say yours has some magic realism there, Peter? I don't want to spoil anything <laughs> on mine. Uh, I don't want anyone to know. I would say there's the possibility, <laughs> there's possibility. of some magic uh, going down, as as is always possible when one is making kind of a Faustian bargain. But yeah, I, no, we have uh, Tommy, Tommy Partle's play, uh, Escape from Theater the Absurd, is just existential absurdity on stage. Um, Lauren Harris's play is uh, fun. Uh, Gridlock is fun with a bit more of kind of a serious bent. Witch in the Woods is getting into just straight magic. A mm-hmm. uh, lot of huge diversity. Huge and those, diversity. those are the mounted productions, correct, Peter? Those are the mounted yeah. that I just lifted off, listed off. There's actually uh, two chan- There's two kind of different programs. We do stage reading, uh, which uh, Frank and Liesl are directing, and then we have full-on productions of um, six of my classmates' plays being put on. And yours is one of those? Mine is staged Excellent. this time around. If you don't mind me asking, if we can backtrack a little bit, of what course. gave you that idea? Where'd that come from? <sighs> Probably should have asked that. Yeah, no, that's Robert very Johnson good. So Brian, uh, Brian uh, <laughs> always talks about how this festival is a shoestring budget. Uh, you know, we rely heavily on the kindness of strangers for props and everything and volunteer time. Um, so he told us we want no no props, very minimal props, very minimal set and production values. So I thought, hmm, 
Uh, I pictured actually a character I invented in a sketch. His name is Metal Dad, and he takes his kids to soccer practice in his minivan. <laughs> but he still has not kind of given up the the metal life. So I pictured where is he? What's going on in his life? So he's a, I realized, of course, he's still in the metal scene. He's still a musician. And I thought, well, how are we going to stage this? And this demonic bargain, I got to the point where shit's going or stuff's going really badly in his life. And so he, he wants to succeed. But I thought the air band came from the fact that, okay, they're going to be doing air instruments. We'll never have the budget or find actors who can pull this off. Why don't we... Uh, why don't we make them air band? And then I realized the comedy could come from the fact that they're an air band that's trying really hard to win some money. <laughs> <laughs> well, as you do. You know, when you said air band, I thought you said, is that, is that, a, is that like an industry term for woodwind instruments? <laughs> are, are, they, are they like flautists? Because either one, like if you're in the battle of the bands and you got, you know, a guy with a flute and you got a guy with um, an oboe, you know, an it's oboe. <laughs> may, maybe not get, well, maybe on novelty, you know, does irony still count oh, for that? Mm-hmm. That's yeah. yeah. I think air guitar in itself is magic realism. Me too. Yeah. 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 You'd have to be. You'd have to believe. It's like you know. You got to bring Tinkerbell back to life. Is the same way. You got to hit the chords. It's Absolutely. a little, little bit of an interesting concept there. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I suppose the b- pretty interesting question in this is that, um, well, actually, there's no way to segue this. Where can we see it? That's a very good, <laughs> good question. question. Excellent question. It's an interesting question because if we don't know where to see it. It'd be a very confusing evening. <laughs> you Do you want it. to take this one, Frank? Sure, sure, sure. It's going to be happening at uh, the stage readings are happening at Studio thirteen ninety eight uh, on Granville Island. Oh, nice. Yeah, great it goes place. from Thursday, March fifteenth, to Sunday, March eighteenth, and um, our stage reading will happen mm-hmm. on March eleventh, if I'm correct. Come on down. Yeah, yeah. Produ- the full productions are twenty dollars, and the stage readings are five dollars. What you have with the stage readings is kind of a cool scenario. Um, the actors will be standing with music stands and the scripts in front of them. So literally the audience will kind of be part of the development process and they get a chance to sit and hear the play as does the playwright. So it's, it's early on, but in those kind of environments, the audience really gets to use their imagination too and kind of like overlap what the set would be like or what the world of it would be like. So stage readings themselves are kind of a cool way to watch a performance. Sort of like a black box theater thing? Uh Uh-huh. And you've had some experiences with some pretty experimental theater in your in, in, I have. in your tenure as an actor. Oh yeah. What yeah. would you say is the weirdest thing you've worked on? Okay, I uh, I did uh, a one man show. I did the Canadian premiere of Always Ur- a Good Start. Uh, but it was like it's it was like looking in the beast, the, the acting monster's eyes, because mm-hmm. it was uh, Irvin Welsh. You probably know Irvin Welsh. He wrote Train Spotting. Yeah. Okay, so my favorite writers. He also wrote. A book that turned into a play called Filth. Yeah, you know it's, Filth. It's, it's James McAvoy. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's a play version of it. It's 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 a great book. I've seen. I, I did, I'm not aware of the play. Oh. So I did the Canadian premiere of the play, and it was it was truly like the Olympics of acting for me because it was a two hour one man play with 26 characters, 24 of which were Scottish, <laughs> with different dialects, and and there's an intermission. Um, you know, he kills himself at the end. They, it's it's a spoiler, spoiler, man. Spoiler, yeah, yeah. yeah I, was, well. I was gonna, I, I was gonna do a spoiler one before I asked how you did the tapeworm, but I was gonna say the tapeworm was the most sensitive character in the piece, and it was, uh, the, it was directed brilliantly. Um, I got, I won an acting award for it, so did my director. And I remember I went from being my wife, who wore this big plush, pink, bathrobe, right, and yeah. then the shift from her into the worm was, I simply put my head through the arm of the bathrobe and then suddenly my whole body became this pink like tube and my my head just popped out they talk like this <laughs> ew I'm growing I am sad that I I'm sad that I missed that I, I would have loved to see that because it's like it's, it's I, I train spotting is probably my favorite movie of all time uh-huh. I've, I've like it's whenever I last night my favorite I get movie, it's, it's, trans- when it's, it's, it's as repulsive too I mean there's you know farting and well, and Ir- Irving Welsh, like he, he he knows how to go there. Like he knows uh-huh. how to balance that mixture of like comedy and legitimately horrible things. He's like Absolutely. Martin McDonough that way. Yeah, yeah, yes. you're right. He is like Martin. I went. I was able to go on a grant before it to Edinburgh and and research and meet people that were familiar with him. I couldn't meet him specifically, but I really got a sense too that he knows the local color in a big way. So oh, he is. Yeah, he was. Yeah. Um, 
when he was writing Train Spotting, he was an electrician, and he had like a little not an office, like it was like a bare space, like an mm-hmm. industrial space, and he'd just sit there and type. And that's how he he got it. Walked up three flights of stairs and then typed out the book. So easy to imagine that. It's so easy to imagine. He's, he he looks like the kind of guy who would do that. Yeah. Like just you see in, in appearance. Like I remember seeing him in the movie Train Spotting. Like oh that's the author. I'm like he looks the part. Uh huh. That, that's about appropriate. <laughs> yeah. And uh, <laughs> so yeah. I, as far as like I, I don't know if that was the performance. Like, like crazy performance or like uh, if you're talking performance art, but it was definitely one of my more kind of challenging off the wall shows I've ever done. That sounds like it. Uh Is there anything like that in Brave New right now, would you say? Anything that touches on a little bit of black humor there? I would say mine. (laughs) Yours? Yep. Um, I'm just looking down the list here. Um, You're more familiar with them than I am. Yeah, Andre Summers is, is... pretty strange in a wonderful way um i'll say it has a bit of a sci-fi tinge and it's pretty dark is uh, it like the terminator one last year there was a terminator one last year that i distinctly remember i'm afraid i didn't uh see it myself but uh sure let's go there why not um <laughs> escape from theater of the absurd That's is pretty dark. whacked yeah. yeah is it now what about yeah you're talking about ours though 12 minutes is that 12 minutes is a beautiful beautiful play this is going to be big it's by uh, logan paler i don't want to give the slightest thing away about it except it's about a relationship <laughs> yeah. and it's 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 amazing it's it's very daring i think theatrically and this is a will be in the stage reading which for which you can buy tickets Mm -hmm. uh february 14th onwards for valentine's day you know buy go on a date tell your date you're gonna buy um tickets to brave new playwrights which can be found at www.bravenew.ca that's www.bravenew.ca february 14th Well, it was it was terrific to have you in the studio. Thanks, Jim. and uh, oh, we're, we're looking forward to it. I'll I will likely see this, and we'll you'll likely hear about it on the radio again. Fantastic! Thanks for having Can't us. Wait. Thanks a bunch. All right. Cheers. Cheers. Uh, we'll just cut to a quick PSA break, and we'll be right back with some interviews from Christine Kim, giving us a double hitter of pre-recorded interviews on Legally Blonde and the Push Festival's history. History. Yeah, it it, it baffles my mind too. She's kind of amazing. Just a minute here. And on we go. Have you ever used or wanted to use a community lending library, collective workshop, or bike co-op? Come out to Making Space, questioning power and privilege in makerspaces on Wednesday, November 29th in the Mount Pleasant Neighborhood House from 5 to 8 p.m. to examine how power and privilege shows up in makerspaces and explore strategies that support more inclusive and equitable initiatives. Go to diversityandmakerspaces.eventbrite.ca to register for this event, and there'll be free food. Newspapers and magazines did you regularly read to stay informed and to understand I've read most of them, again, with a great appreciation for the press, for the media. But like, what coming, specifically? Um, all of them. Want to know more than Sarah Palin? Join CITR's Current Affairs Coordinator, Alex oh, DeBoer, every were... Tuesday from 4 to 5 p.m. in room 2514 in the AMS Nest to learn best practices for covering local current affairs topics for radio. The weekly training sessions will cover writing for radio, determining newsworthiness, media ethics, interviewing, writing balanced stories, and more. For those who are wondering, yes, that was completely intentional. Um, we have an in- we interview here, Christine's first interview, which is regarding an upcoming production of Legally Blonde, and that is the interview with Elle Woods herself, Julia Ulrich, who is uh, is brunette in real life, but she's also a fine actor. So we'll see how this pans out. It's the musical many of us have come to know and love, Legally Blonde, the musical. A story about a female protagonist, Elle Woods, as she embarks on a journey to prove herself in the prestigious and patriarchal setting that is Harvard Law. 
Legally Blonde is running from February 2nd to 17th at the Michael J. Fox Theatre. I got to catch up with Julia Ulrich, the actress playing Elle Woods in the production, right as she was taking a break from her daytime teaching job to find some peace and quiet. Like we're all set to go. How are you doing with the the classroom situation? <laughs> uh, I'm good. I'm good. I'm in a stairwell. It's not great, but it's all right. Oh, really, congratulations on landing the iconic role of Elle Woods. Thank you. Yeah, I'm super excited about it. Yeah, when you were first offered this role to play, um, how did you feel? Nervous? Excited? Um, I guess kind of both. Like when I was offered the role, and I think maybe a little bit incredulous also, mm. I. I got it and was like, really? Oh, wow. Um, I don't know. I was just very surprised. I remember there being another person at the callbacks that I thought, oh, she's going to get it for sure. And then when I got it, I was like, oh, wow, okay, awesome. <laughs> and I mean, Elwood's is such a role model for, for many young girls. And the fact that you also right now are teaching young girls and boys, what kind of relevance do you think that the narrative uh, that Legally Blonde still has like in current day events? I think what stands out for me is Elle goes through this really great uh, journey over the course of the show where she starts out and she, you know, she's this rich girl and she has everything that she wants and she has this great line at the top of the show that I just love. She says, uh, dreams really do come true. You never have to compromise. And she's just so like ignorant about what the world is really like and but then as she goes along, she gets put up against these challenges of being in Harvard and people not taking her seriously, and she doesn't really understand the work that goes into what she has to do. And mm. But then eventually, you know, she, she figures out it out and realizes that, like, oh, you know, I really want this, but I have to work hard to get it. And I think that's, that's a message that people can, can, can connect to. It's if you really want something, people might tell you that you're you're not right for it, you can't do it, whatever, but it might take a lot of work and a lot of dedication, but you can you can do it. Hmm. What parts of your story, and I mean career path, um, that you're able to share with us um, relates to what you were just talking about with Elle Woods fighting through, I guess, certain stereotypes and, and people telling her that she can't do certain things um, just because of, you know, the way that she looks or her personality? I guess, I mean, being an actor, everyone knows, is a challenging thing to attempt to do. And so that's kind of a constant battle of working really hard and trying to get where you want to be and people telling you that you can't do it, shouldn't do it, should try something else, you don't have the right look, whatever. And they may be right, but I think at the end of the day, that comes down to how much you really wanted in your dedication. How far are you willing to go to do what you what you love, what you want to do? So, I'm still on still on the path, still on the road. Yeah, I mean, no kidding. So, not only do you have a passion in musical theater, but also teaching. You've got a bachelor's of education from UBC uh, that you had yeah. been speaking to me about a little bit before. Uh, I'm curious, how do you use your theater background in in teaching with your students? I guess it, I mean it comes up a lot. I with my in my teaching degree, I specialized in drama and English. Of so, <laughs> so I, yeah, so um, I get an opportunity to teach drama quite a bit. But I decided this year, being my first year of teaching, I wanted to to be a substitute, a teacher on call for the majority of the time. So I wind up teaching all different subjects, some of which I don't know anything about. And so then it involves a lot of improvisation. Like, okay, how are we going to get this plan for the day done and how am I going to hopefully have a good time with the students but they're still achieving the goals for the day and then teaching too like a lot of it is a performance you know maybe you're not really feeling up to it that day but you can't can't show that to the kids then they're never going to want to participate or do what you're asking them to do so there's a definitely a performance aspect to that as well. Mm-hmm. And it's crazy, I mean, juggling the the subbing role as a teacher, but then also being the front center main character in this in this huge production, Legally Blonde the Musical. How have you been managing your time? 
Um, <laughs> with a, a little bit of difficulty, <laughs> but uh, we're, we're getting through it. This week is our tech week, and I'm also on a, a longer substitute contract and with a drama class, and they're putting on a show, so it's, it's getting a little bit crazy, but I'm trying. Hmm. I'm tired. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and now... Legally Blonde, it's it, it's such a classic musical, and I'm sure that many people in the audience will have seen either the movie um, with Reese Witherspoon in it, or maybe it having been performed in a, at another stage. Um, mm-hmm. So Legally Blonde, as presented by Align Entertainment, uh, what kind of features of the production do you think will make it distinct from the other renditions of it? This is a... A tricky one, I think, because um, I don't. I only remember I saw the production at Theater Under the Stars the first time they did it, and mm. and I feel like for the most part, their Align's production is pretty. They're going pretty traditionally with it. It's not like we're changing the time period mm. or doing anything crazy with it, you know. Got it. Because it's it's a representation of the movie, and you don't want to stray too far away from that movie that everyone loved. So. I think that people will come and get what they are expecting to get mm-hmm. from this mm-hmm. production. Okay, okay. Yeah. And you working with the rest of the cast, I am kind of curious. Had you worked with any of the other actors or actresses before? Quite a few, yeah. Our, the musical theater van- uh, community in Vancouver is not, not too terribly big, so I've worked with a number of them before. Hmm. So it must have been nice to work with old friends again, no? It is, yeah. It's always a pleasure to to walk in and, and know who you're working with and already have a, a pre-established relationship with those people. It just makes it easier to pretend that they're your friends because they actually are your friends. Mm-hmm. Or if you have to, you know, like um, working with Renee Miller and she's playing Vivian Kensington. I don't think we've done a show together in quite a long time, but just like knowing her from the community, it's n- nice to have that relationship outside of the show when then she has to turn on me and be really mean and all that kind of stuff. It's sort of funny because she's also like the complete opposite of that character. She must be one of the sweetest people I know. (laughs) And then she just like turns a switch and becomes this like horrible, nasty character. So it's, it's really funny to watch. She does such a great job of it too. Thank you for listening. My name is Christine Kim, reporting for CITR's Arts Report. If you're interested in buying tickets for the Legally Blonde production, perhaps as a nice Valentine's Day gift, you can buy them through vtixonline.com. That is v-t-i-x-online.com. Legally Blonde, playing at the Michael J. Fox Theater in Burnaby, put on by Align Entertainment Productions, is playing from February 2nd to 17th. Perfect. Thank you. Oh, and actually, one last question. Do any of your uh, kids, your your students, um, know that you're going to be playing in this musical? Are they going to be coming for the, perhaps for some of the production dates? I hope so. I've been at the same. I've been at the same school on a on a subcontract for just about a month and a half, and I actually did my practicum here, so I know a lot of them pretty well. And I hope they're going to come. We'll Aww. see. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. I think it would be such a joy to see them in the crowd. <laughs> totally. Oh my gosh, I'd love for them to be there. So hopefully they they make it out. Oh my God, you guys! I've seen I've seen that play before performed live, and uh, yeah, it um, that song is a little a little catchy, sticks sticks in the brain a little bit. Um, on a, a slight change of pace, we have another interview courtesy of Christine regarding history, history, history. I said it more enthusiastically. It's in all lowercase in the the title, uh, which was a push festival feature, and uh, well, I'll just uh, let Christine fill in on the rest. <laughs> 
So I'm just gonna be casually recording this conversation. <laughs> you know, um, I know who you are, but do you want to just say your name and uh, your relation to me? <laughs> Sinead Kim, older sister, second older sister of Christine Kim. And the first time you're accompanying me to an arts report event. The Arts Report event being history, history, history of the PUSH um, 2018 International Performing Arts Festival in partnership with the Vancouver International Film Festival. We've just finished the uh, performance and as people can probably hear, everybody is filing out, but we found a good nook and cranny to sit and chill a bit at. I really like the performance. I mean, the way that she showed a film, talked through like basically 80% of it, and told a completely different story. Like a story that was connected, but a, a different story that centered more around her grandmother. Or, sorry, not grandmother, her grandfather. What did you think about it? Yeah, definitely the format was something that I never seen before. Um, the way it's presented is quite amazing. It's just very creative, I guess. Uh, prior to looking at it, I don't think you can really know what to expect because it is a per totally personal story for yeah. her. Um, and that's what I got out of to get a hit, not history in a general history sense, but it is a history of her family really yeah like when I was so I didn't do too much research on this before coming in but I had read the synopsis on the website and I mean I was expecting like a documentary film but in theater form but number one this isn't a documentary in the sense that the history that she told was more personal than anything and it wasn't a film because the film that she was showing wasn't the focus. The film was at adapted. The subtitles were adapted. I thought in both senses I was I was caught off guard. I think when you say the focus isn't the film, you mean that in a way that for the general audience it the focus isn't the film, but for her it is the focus, but she just sees it in a um, different perspective and spoiler because her <laughs> because her grandfather is part of the film and I think it's her personal search of where she comes from and her desire to know her roots and how we all come to be and in that sense that film holds so much maybe meaning to her because that's kind of where her grandfather is, and her grandfather isn't with her anymore. The film kind of happened to have been made and ha happened to have tried to be released on a date um, where uh, such an interesting, or I shouldn't say interesting, but a, such an impactful historical uh, event happened in Hungary. Yeah, I like how you were framed it like this happened and then this happened because that was a very repetitive theme that she kept bringing up that these seemingly like random events in your life kind of bring you to where you are now and when you try and look back or dig back through history and your ancestry you often like might be able to find like certain key events but there's a story that's always untold there's like a big narrative that you just never really quite uncover fully and I think in that sense like she started off the production in such a big meta broad concept way that for me honestly it made it hard for me to figure out what was going on because it was so theoretical it was so um, high level that I just in the beginning it was really hard for me to get into it because I didn't get what she was saying I mean she said things that I understood like in words but just as ideas and as concepts I didn't see how it came together until like you know it started to pick up and you started to see a bit of a more concrete cohesive 
point, I guess. Yeah, because she just started with the, the film and we were just watching the films in Hungarian and it's partially subtitled, but we're like, oh, what is going on? Yeah, she gets into a very personal story and about her family and how their family came here and how she grew up in Canada. And that's much more relatable to everyone, I think. Everyone has family and how their family came to be, so... Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Do you feel like you kind of got like a history lesson in the Hungarian Revolution? Um... Yeah, for sure, and it, there was definitely a little bit of a uh, history lesson, and also what it puts into perspective is, uh, as much as it is a historical event, it is a event with just, like, so many people, like, just like me and just like you, and that have family and that are impacted in their lives, and it all, everything has its consequences, and years down the road, we're here, yeah. I guess that's what she was saying as well at the end. And now I'm here, um, yeah, presenting this to you. Is this a show you think you would recommend for other people to watch? Yeah, for sure. I think just the creativity of how it's presented in itself is pretty amazing and it's relatable because um, especially in a country like Canada where we're made up of so many different immigrants and yeah, we all come from different places and our, all, all of our families have different histories and it's all intertwined in different yeah, historical events and it's a good time of, I guess, reflection. And it's humorous. Like I think that there were points, I'm not going to lie, there were points in the production or the show where I was like, this is getting a little dry or boring, <laughs> but then she would crack like a joke or there would be like some kind of subtitling error in the, in the film that make that made me laugh also one of the unexpected turns that the story came to was when she started to talk about what happened to her grandfather after they immigrated to Canada you know the kind of unexpected turns that fate had for her grandmother and her biological grandfather after they settled here your thoughts on audience on you know people who came to see tonight's production primarily from a theater background or people who came to see the production primarily from like a film buff background? I think one thing that I did notice was maybe like there were like some people that definitely knew Hungarian <laughs> because I could, it's like so much more funnier when you hear it in the actual language and their like the satirical comedy of it um, comes to them naturally because yeah, because I could hear some people like really like laughing and then I'm like oh they're really getting it <laughs> and I'm like trying to read the subtitles and I'm like ah <laughs> oh, like, oh, I can see how it could be funny I'm sure it's funnier in the real language yeah. oh, for sure, for sure any other push shows uh, performances you're looking forward to? I don't know any else that's um, ongoing, but um, yeah, I mean, this was definitely an interesting one, and if there's other ones, then I guess that they will be interesting too. I will bring you along. Sounds good. Cool. We should probably head home now, eh? Yeah, we should probably head home now. I, I know the feeling sometimes, you know. Uh, we're just going to have a quick ad break. Um, I do want to note before this, one of these ads is going to be for the Rio Theater. And uh, there's actually a campaign going on right now called Save the Rio. And uh, if, you, if you just look it up, it's uh, the Rio is basically this. This is a movie plot. Basically, we kind of got to pull a break in for the Rio because uh, it's uh, been basically been bought out. And uh, the crew behind the lot of this a lot of the uh features at the rio these great features that we all kind of love or at least i assume we do uh will want to buy the theater and if they don't it will probably be demolished and if you think about it this way for those of you who've seen the disaster artist the rio was the first place james franco saw the room so you know that's that's history in the making right there um yeah and uh so save the rio and uh well i'll just have them uh Say it, have them say the rest. Here's. Without the help and support of our friends, we here at CITR wouldn't be able to bring you all the great music, art, cinema, and culture that you love. 
Thanks to the long-standing support from the Rio Theatre, we are able to keep you informed on all the great artists, films, and everything else coming to town there. For all the current information about who and what's playing at the Rio Theatre, visit their website at www.riotheatre.ca. your resume by studying abroad and get that dream job. Don't miss the Study and Go Abroad Fair on Sunday, February 25th at the Vancouver Convention Center. Admission is free, and if you come early, you can catch our feature seminar on scholarships. For more information, check out our website, www.studyandgoabroad.com. Well, yeah, I, I kind of bummed us all out there a little bit. Uh, for the record, I'm not talking in my, to myself in the, plural, in the plural. I am joined here by our correspondents, Lua and Ileana. Say hello. Hi. Hey. So you guys have seen, between the two of you, three shows. And we want to, I want to talk about, well, I want to kick this off with the one you guys saw in tandem, which is Jitters, the Arts Club production. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. It's a really interesting play about putting together a play. I, I get the feeling, I, I've seen a couple of those. Like, I've seen Curtains, you know, MDT. I always feel a little prejudiced against them, maybe, because writers writing about writing, actors acting about acting, so forth and so on. Like, it, it always seems to me like, in, uh, just, it's write what you know, but, you know, learn more things, too. I guess. But, it, but, but in that light, was it good? <laughs> It was so good. It was a hilarious play. Well, then toss what I just said then. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I definitely feel with like writers writing what they know, doing like the writing process, but it's another thing to have like such like a fun comedy that you can just like it's it's just a huge group of people that you're trying so hard to like do something with and it's something I think everyone has gone through in like work projects and like it's just anything when you're like the director and you're like I have just please do this please do that please don't fight each other sort of thing so it's just kind of fun it's just a fun show and if anyone is in the acting world or in the art world in general like they have to see this play it's literally everything that could go wrong goes wrong and that's my experience with life really <laughs> and you just have fun with it because it doesn't it's not happening to you but you can ident- like you can feel like oh that almost happened to me but it, we pull through in the end and they do pull through in the end and this is a Canadian play right this is a Canadian mm-hmm. play written in the 70s mm-hmm. yeah we were really scared uh, that we weren't gonna get a lot of the jokes because and we did in that part <laughs> Because we're both not Canadian at all. <laughs> but um, in the beginning, it was like that. Everyone was laughing. And... For reader's context, where are you, what, where are you guys oh, approaching yeah. this from? Uh, I'm from the States. And I'm from Brazil. So, so yeah. It's a little <laughs> totally bit far away yeah. for me. <laughs> but, but in that light, did it carry over? Most um, of it, yes. Um, there was moments in the beginnings that everyone was laughing and we'd just smile and nod and be like, uh, did you get it? Yeah, we both, <laughs> we both like looked at each other as everyone was laughing and we like, did you get it? I didn't get it. <laughs> yeah. But it picks up like the humor kind of starts going and it's more like accidental humor, like being really loud or over-exaggerated and stuff like that. It's that sort of humor that just kind of like translates. And something that I found really interesting is that, yes, it was a play written in the 70s, but it feels very ageless to it, but they still chose to characterize um, everyone as in a very 70s style, and I feel that it was a very accurate, especially the shoes. I'm just really in love with shoes. Platform and, shoes? Yeah, for the men, which are really hard to find nowadays, and they did it, and I was just impressed with it. Man, that's a... I can't imagine that. I, 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 it's hard enough for me to stay upright on my own feet most of the time. I don't know how they managed in the disco age. Mm-hmm. I guess I guess cocaine's a hell of a drug, right? <laughs> um, so, but was there like leisure suits, afros, the whole nine oh, yards? Oh yeah, oh yeah, definitely. I think uh, definitely uh, a <laughs> uh, fro. 
going on. Um, there was a lot of um, there was this one wig that was trying to show a perm, but the, like a badly done. Um, <laughs> it, felt very, <laughs> it felt very 70s because that's basically what everyone wore. Well, yeah, I mean, it's well, as the thing that I realize about the 70s, I watched 24 Hour Part People the other day, and mm-hmm. that takes place from that's mostly in the 80s, but everything seems dated even as it realizes other things are dated. Like, there's guys in the 70s sitting around there with le- the, the clothes from the Rudy Ray Moore collection and the hair that they've, like, permed and frizzed so that they can get a small globe on top of their head. And they're like, yeah, man, those guys in the Chelsea boots and mod suits were so dated, am I right? And, and, <laughs> it's, and then same after that, you got the new waivers with the shoulder pads like they're going to try and attempt to tackle and the frizzy hair. They're like, oh, man, those leisure suits were so lame. And then we look back on it and we can actually see the era when it takes place or we can see when someone's temporally out of place. Oh, that's so cool. How big was the average collar in this show, I have to ask? Oh, man. I think it – like, I don't think it was that big, but it was kind of like – Little, little on the big side. I feel. I think if I remember correctly, it didn't like call as much attention. Like what really called my attention was um, the patterns that you don't see today. We we don't use as much patterns as they used, especially the mismatch. Yeah, a lot of the tartan mismatch, especially yeah. like the the plaid bell bottoms. Well, a lot, yes, a lot of those, and even when they changed clothing, they they were still wearing. Um, that actually, there were actually a few changes like of costume that I was impressed. They they still kept the style very very accurate, and each character had a very specific style, uh, especially um, the guy that played the uh, car- the film must. <laughs> yeah, he has master case. I don't know yeah. how to say it. Let me see. Yeah, let me see go. that this is the the program. He had. Pro- I I would vote Phil him the best. Yeah, I would vote him the best dressed. Uh, so he's, he's obviously Swedish. He <laughs> also was the funniest person in this whole play, James Fagenti. Oh, for God's sake! I'm sorry. We're. <laughs> <laughs> James Fagan Tate. Oh God, that's an unfortunate last name. I was, I said I, it right. I said it. Yes, you did. You did. I was just, I was just hoping like you gotta. That's 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 no. two things that can potentially go horribly wrong in the pronunciation. I'm sorry to him. Well, he gave a funny performance. So there. You were. He was so good. He was so good. I don't know if he's listening to this, but if you are, you were the funniest character in this whole show. He was just. He just his expressions, his voice, everything he like did was just hilarious. And it, even to me, the best part about him is that it was almost completely nonverbal. When I you would look at him and you would know that something was off or something was working perfectly well, and you just wanted to laugh just looking at him. He's a good physical comic. Yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. They were they were all really good in their own ways, but his was more of like expression and like sound and stuff everyone else's were more of like kind of witty humor in a way the dialogue between each of the actors and just like their director and writer were all like very like witty and funny and stuff like that it was just like screwball yeah. comedy basically yeah, yeah basically yeah so I, I like screwball comedy a lot and you'd say this is like a good example of a screwball comedy i think so if i keep saying the word screwball comedy it'll Become It'll, gradually more yeah. surreal. <laughs> like comment. any, like any word. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but the screwball is already a word that like it doesn't doesn't make visual sense. Like it's, now it's, I'm like thinking about it. And we've overcomplicated this for everyone. Uh, <laughs> who would you recommend this for exactly? Um, I would definitely recommend this for if you want to take a date out to go see this. Ah, tis the season, right? Tis this, it, this would be a, an a amazing date. Date Because <laughs> both of you will have fun, for sure. Um, and you'll just get out of there and be like, wow, what a great show. <laughs> it's nice. It's nice, light. You're not, you're not leaving out. You're not leaving depressed or... Yeah, okay. it's a good and it's like a nice conversation starter too. Um, 
And you could talk about the stage as this, as my darling friend over here loves to talk about. How is it staged? Okay, so I'm very excited about stages that are non-conventional. And as soon as I got into the theater, I looked at the stage and I was like, hmm, there's something different about this. And I <laughs> told her and I was like, the moment I was like, if the stage turns, this is going to be my favorite play. And from the second to the third act, it did turn around. Like, it, we could only see half the circle, and it turned around so we could see the other half. Okay. Which was, like, the backstage. backstage. Fair okay. So half the play happens, like, on the stage, and then the other half of the play happens backstage. Oh, sort of like a Kiss Me Kate kind of thing. Yeah. And the moment it turned, I was just like, wow, I love this. She was so excited about that. It was hilarious. It has a revolving stage. Five stars. <laughs> That's honestly how she was. Exactly. How excited I was. Two thumbs up. And it, um, the other thing is that even though it was a revolving stage, usually people forget that stage also has height, and, but they still incorporated um, setting elements on the top part that didn't move, which I was so impressed with. They put on, like, because there's a line, more or less, like, where the wall would end um, that separates one side from the other. But above that, they put a bunch of costumes and stuff to represent one side or the other. Yeah, the backstage was really nicely designed with putting, like, the way that they put all the posters to, like, call back to the time period that they were in, which is really, really, really cool. I so, think. Hmm? So you'd recommend it? Yeah. To, to sum up the obvious. All right. That's good. I, I, like, to, I like to hear about shows like this because, like I said, it's a genre I like. And, yeah, generally pretty solid. I think the only thing we had a problem with was the ending. Ah, but if you have uh, a problem with the ending, that's the last impression it leaves you with. Okay. I know, proceed. but it's still like, it was, it just, it's still a really good show. I would still recommend seeing it, but the ending just felt very abrupt. Like it didn't feel like it really resolved anything, like, or like some, something did change, but it just felt empty. Like we should have seen more. Is it like a like a drop off sort of? Yeah. yeah. Or like a voodoo shark ending. It's no. not even that. Is that especially that the first they only have so it's a three act play, but they only have one intermission, so it. How long is it? So they put the two the two the act one and act two together and then act three separately, and it's like a one hour and a half, chunk, and then you have the act three, that's a, which that's is a lot shorter than the first two acts. Um, so maybe I would have liked to see a, two intermissions just so it could be better defined. Um, and it did feel very long the first half. And yeah, I gotta, I gotta say that also happens in, so yesterday I saw the skin of our teeth at Langara, which I don't have a lot to say about this cause this play is pretty unsummarizable, but I really like Studio... I've liked Studio 58's productions a lot in the past, so go see it. Go, go check it out. It's at Studio 58 at Langara. It's, uh, it is also a three-act play done in two parts, except in that case, it's Act 2 and Act 3 that are done at the same time. And that is... There's a series of fourth wall breaks throughout. Uh, and uh, that's... Uh, that's the, which is also kind of funny, because that's also a metatheatrical play. The stage manager's a character. Oh, that's so nice. And the, the main actress keeps interrupting the play to express her dissatisfaction. <laughs> <laughs> I love, I kind of love those, like, meta plays. I think they're very interesting. It's 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 funny. Skin of Our Teeth, probably less of a, a, a date play because, like, I, I realize this. This is a, a play where there are reference, like, there's, uh, not not that it's, this would necessarily be a barrier to a date. This would probably be a pretty good date, but... It's weird, man. Like, like what constitutes a good date for me, based on the trajectory of most of my past relationships, is not does not often constitute a good date for most people. So, because of that, I gotta say, skin of our teeth. If you like, and basically, if 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 you like weird, if you like weird reference humor, you're gonna love skin of our teeth. It sounds like maybe like. 
a third or fourth date? Definitely not a first date, apparently. <laughs> there you go. So take the first date to, for jitters, and then for the next date, go to go to Skin of Our Teeth. Yeah. And then that, that'll be the test, right? That'll be the... <laughs> you liked me in this one, and now let's see if you like me at, like, my weird phase. Where... <laughs> uh, it's going to get someone getting, getting furious at me, like, God damn it, Jake, your, your phony advice. It's like, well, it's a great play. They're both good plays. See them. Be a patron of the arts. I'm really interested about skin up our teeth. It's a, so it's it's um yeah unsummarizable is probably a word for it. It's set in the in the prehistoric era, but simultaneously in 1942. Um, the, the is there a specific reason that it's set in 1942? Thornton or? Wilder was a weird man. That's the reason. <laughs> <laughs> um, Thornton Wilder though wrote this, and if if you're familiar with the name at all, Thornton Wilder was probably one of the whitest men who ever lived. Good playwright, but um, a little, shall we say, waspy about about his output. But he did, did have a meta-theatrical streak. And with this play, when he wrote this, he decided, you know what? Take it up to 11. Take it up to 11. Like, we have Mr. Antrobus, who invents the wheel. Like He, he doesn't look like a, He's not dressed like a caveman. He's wearing, like, a three-piece suit because he goes to the office and he's got family in the suburbs of New Jersey. But he invents the wheel and the alphabet. You know, it's all in a day's work, right? His son's name is Kane. Henry. Henry, sorry. Oh. Uh, Ken, he had another son, incidentally. Not anymore, though. Uh, <laughs> and uh, his wife is Eva. You get it? It's um and the, the and there's a lot of references like that. It's really fast. It's really screwy, and I honestly, it's kind of hilarious. Is it hilarious because you get the references, or is it hilarious? Because it does. There's... It does help. Um, there's like for one thing, there was one line that would really go very badly if the reference wasn't known, which is a reference to actually the rape of the Sabine women, which is oh. Roman history. Look it up. Look it up. But I, they addressed this. Uh, they, we had a Q&A, and they specifically addressed it because at the time when the term rape meant theft, effectively, it was interchangeable because okay. it's not so great an implication because women were seen as objects. But it's like, it's a different term. And it, it's one of those awkward moments, but there's a, there's a couple of those in it. Also, worth noting about this, this play is kind of relevant because one thing, so I live in Kits, and there's a biblical flood at one point, and uh, put it this way, I'm... I, I live in Kits. I mentioned this. There's the civil rise <laughs> yes. a little bit. Um, also, Mr. Antrobus, in the second act of the play, becomes president of mankind uh, in Atlantic City, making uh, bombastic speeches where he addresses past uh, faults in a very, uh, shall we say, spin-doctorly manner, uh, while judging a beauty contest and committing marital infidelity. Wow. I can't see any parallel that will that will draw. Um, <laughs> uh, at all, um, um, it's, it's 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 a huge grasp, uh, gasp, grasp, uh, gap. Blah, 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 that's all, folks. Gap, <laughs> yeah. That definitely sounds like a play I want to see now. Yes, it's 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 so those are two theatrical productions we both heartily endorsed. Yes, and we still have three more to go, including oh, yeah. a <laughs> film, a, a web series, and an opera. Nice. <laughs> what a what a huge like change. Yeah. Honestly, we live rich lives. Um, okay, so we'll start with the film. Okay, so the film is called Brasilia: Life After Design, and it's about Brasilia. The... Is it really? Yeah. <laughs> so Brasilia is the capital city of Brazil. Um, it was directed by Bart Simpson. Yes, that is his real name. <laughs> you can't joke about it. Does he at least have a flat top in real life? No. <laughs> so it's a documentary style movie. It took about six years to make. And I was born and raised in Brazil. And because of that, you end up knowing a lot about Brasilia. But I'm one of the people that have never been there. So the idea is that Brasilia is... Um, was a city constructed in the middle of the country where there was absolutely nothing by one of her presidents, which his slogan was 50 years in five. He really did want to do a lot of change um, and create a lot of new things. And he even had, the movie has probably one of the last interviews with the architect of Brasilia, and he was 102 at the time. 
Wow. So when the director came up and talked about it, um, he even said that our ideal plan was that we would have about six conversations with him. But at that point, he was already so far gone that we only got to ask him five questions. Well, I think he would be running against the clock at that point. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But even though it was only five questions, every moment that he appeared in the film, it was just a perfect moment. And the things he said really did have an impact. And I think what I t- the, one of the most important things I took from this is how interesting that um, the idea behind Brasilia was that it was supposed to be an utopia. The city. Yeah, the city was supposed to be an utopia where everyone was pretty much the same. Every sector was is very divided, still is. Um, so you have a sector for this thing, a sector for where people live, a sector for the government. And it's still very divided, um, especially because the city, you can't change the city because it's part of the, it's a heritage site. Okay. Yeah. But the city, the city isn't growing, but there are satellite cities that grow around it. And they are really, really big. Ah, so is it sort of like LA County thing? It's sort of, this becomes a sort of urban sprawl? Yeah, it's, it's become an urban sprawl, but it's also... So you have to think that the city was planned to hold um, 500,000 people, and today it holds almost 2 million. Huh. Yeah, with the satellite cities. Um, so, so some slight infrastructural problems. And there, their, their the... initial idea was that they would first fill up, reach the capacity of the main city, and then the satellite cities were going to be built. But it's Brazil, and nothing ever goes according to plan. Um, <laughs> yes. There's the, the slogan there. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's the contractor. Nothing ever goes according to plan. Basically. It's like you get a surprise. But, you know, we, we do um, find our way, and that's what really the movie shows. It follows um, uh, several people around their daily lives, and it shows that although some things aren't exactly perfect, we do have a way to figure them out. And the city really becomes the main character in this film. That's 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 interesting because I, I've seen some films that are love letters to cities. You know, like there was there actually there was Columbus recently. Ashley reviewed that for Vath. But that's an interesting message because to go back to Skin of Our Teeth, it's weird how this connects. Skin of Our Teeth. <laughs> is themed around two things cyclical history uh and the resilience of humanity because they survive basically three apocalypses they survive um an ice age a flood and war during that so that's that's interesting i guess i guess that's a testament to it's a testament to our species and i oh sorry um but i think also it's not only us as humans but there's something very brazilian about the way um there is this outlook on life um, that we have that is very, very different from everyone else. We just, yes, we know that our country isn't the best, that our government is going down the drain, but, you know, like, life goes on. And... um, That's a bold (laughs) statement to make. (laughs) It's like, well, we're falling apart, but yeah, so it goes. But literally, if you go to Brazil, that's exactly the what what happens. Everyone knows how bad things are, but we always find a way to make things better. And one of the things, that, one other thing that I really found interesting is that it really was a city that was created to divide because it is so separated. And one of the questions that arose from the movie is, how do you connect in a city that was created to divide? It is not a movie that tries to show a specific point of view. It just really shows what kind of city Brasilia is and who are the people that live there. So it's really interesting, especially for me who has never visited Brasilia. And if I do go there, it's going to be a new with new eyes. So that's interesting because I, I didn't know that at all about the planning of the city. Wow. Huh. That's so beautiful too, though. And... uh well, what's the problems in La Cenerentola in pretty sharp contrast? Uh, La Cenerentola was the UBC opera, actually, that was going on. It's, it's Cinderella. It's a, oh. Yeah, it's, it's Italian Cinderella. Um, 
which I don't have a joke for that. I really should. But uh, <laughs> it's it's written by was the music is by Joaquino Rossini. You know him. Uh, the big guy, you know, he was he wrote 39 operas, retired at the age of 39, and then became a great chef, and it showed a little bit. Um, it, it great, his put it this way, his contribution to French cuisine, he lived in France, uh, was beef tenderloin topped with pate. Yum? Yeah. Yeah, yum, I, yes. I, I, uh, it rather explains the somewhat planetary dimensions to which he gravitated towards his later life. I, he, he looked like Orson Welles, sort of. He looked like Italian Orson Welles. Brilliant uh, <laughs> composer, though. And mm. La Cenerentola, the word to describe Rossini's operas is charming. That's what they are. Aww. They're, like, he wrote the, the, um, um, the, the, um, the, the what, what is it? No, I you can say, do it, man. William Tell Overture, that's it. I was going to say Peter Gunn theme, but I'm like, no, no, that's wrong. That's Henry Mancini. That's different guy. I get hit in the head a lot. Uh, and the UBC opera productions, they're very short. And it's a double cast that each does two nights. And I saw the night with uh, Simran Clare playing uh, La Cenerentola. That's that's the Cinderella character. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, she's lovely, lovely uh, high voice. Um, there's also Don Magnifico, who is the bass. Uh, and Rossini was famous for writing funny parts for basses. Uh, and he's the evil stepfather. I yeah, the stepfather in this iteration. Nice. Already, am super interested. When you said his name, I just like stood up a little bit. He he is as grandstanding as you think he as as you think he's like he he multiple times threatens to beat the La, La Cenerentola to a pulp. That's oh the, no! Yeah, here's where I could make the really offensive Italian Cinderella joke. Um, don't I won't do it. Do it. But <laughs> just putting that out there. And um, Ivy Calvert and Jodie Lear as Clorinda and Tisby. Those are the evil stepsisters. Also delightful. Everyone's having a blast in this. Especially Kurt Ward Dice. Dice, Dice, as Dandini. And I don't know if you've ever seen this in um, a play or a story or what you will, but the prince's valet will switch places with the prince. No way. And that's what happens in this case for the prince to observe who he wants to marry and that's how he falls in love with Echenrentola. But Dandini is the valet impersonating the prince and he's doing exactly what I would do in that situation which is just flounce around in a jacket he looks like he stole from Chris Isaac and just be charming. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> and then just occasionally screw with uh, uh, Don Magnifico by uh, revealing that he's the valet so that all of his <laughs> sucking up has been... For naught. Yeah. And... Like this is this was a great show, um, and yeah, I, I I got a lot of good to say about it. Unfortunately, you won't be able to see it because it kind of comes and goes. You can listen to, uh, yeah, I believe you can listen to it. You can certainly find uh, the scores to all of Rossini's operas. I can find them on Spotify. They're great. Um, but UBC Opera will be returning actually in June. It's a bit of a ways off with um, Il Tabaro slash Gianni Shichi. Okay, I, I speak a little bit of Italian, but that was that's a little difficult to pronounce properly. Which is a Puccini. Puccini. Feature and uh, Puccini. My, my favorite is Rosini, but Pucci, he was all right. He's good. He's good. <laughs> that Verity guy was also nice too. I'm, I like. I like it. Well, I'm sure you have a better taste than us. I don't know any opera I don't, I, players. Yeah, I've only been to one opera and I slept through it. Unfortunately. Oh my god. <laughs> check check them out. Just I think the best thing to do with operas is listen to them, especially now. If if you have if you guys see them live, I get that. Like even people who like opera sometimes have problems seeing them live, because uh, this was an exception. Like the acting in La Cenerentola was pretty good, but most operas you you have to sing before you have to act, right? So it's a little awkward sometimes see live. But if you listen to these, like like just uh, give give them a listen, pop them in Spotify. Uh, La Gazza Ladra would be my recommendation for Rosini, which literally means the thieving magpie. Ooh. Um, and there's also um. This is not um Pagliacci. Just well, my favorite opera is probably Pagliacci, but that's that's not that's it. Check out La Gazzaladra, and um yeah yeah that's, that's all I I got I got to say. And uh, look forward to UBC Opera. And before we go, Ileana, um I'm just gonna say that uh, Tell a Story Hive is doing a voting right now for episodes. They have pilots for n- different series that they're trying to get people to vote for to see uh, which of those series is popular to give them more money to make more episodes. I went to go see Luchador, and I would definitely recommend seeing it on Tell a Story Hive or at their website, luchadorseries.com. It's really funny. It's really great. It's a 
it's a superhero movie, but a Mexican superhero movie. And let me movie. guess, it's about a juggler. No. <laughs> uh, a copywriter. Close. Um, a, a particle physicist. Definitely far, far away. Hmm, okay, let me see. Oh, is it about a wrestler? It is. Okay, okay, good, good. Deceptively titled it is. Yeah. <laughs> I would definitely go see it on Story Hack. Uh, tell a Story Hack. We're going to have a longer feature for that uh, coming up for 24 Hours of Student Power, so uh, keep your ears peeled for that. That's an odd turn of phrase now that I think about it. Uh, okay, so this was the Arts Report on CITR 101.9 FM. I'm Jake Clark. I'm Lua. I'm Eliana. And it's been lovely having you. Cheers. No, it's not. Oh, what great